0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. It's a great honor to stand before you today in the absence of Pastors Frank and Greg and open the Word of God together. But as we do, we're all very conscious that we do not stand alone. We are part of a great multitude. There are Christians all over our country. There are Christians all over the world at this hour who are remembering and celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation reminds us that we stand on the shoulders of Christians in the past, And the life we share with them is possible only because of our common union with the Lord Jesus Christ. A life that we share by God's grace alone, through faith alone. Turn with me in the Bible this morning to Acts chapter 16, please. Acts chapter 16, where we will read verses 16 through 34. Acts 16, verses 16 through 34. The scene takes place in the Greek town of Philippi. I used to call it Philippi. I was corrected a number of weeks ago. It's Philippi. And we read, beginning with verse 16 of chapter 16, these words. As we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city." They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept and practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let us pray. Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We teach no new thing, but we repeat and establish old things which the apostles and all godly teachers have taught before us. So said a short, overweight German monk named Martin Luther 500 years ago this month. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is the very foundation of our Protestant life and our Baptist life. And it was the great doctrine that Luther referred to when he said, We don't teach anything new. We just establish old things. That doctrine had been obscured in the Middle Ages by the Church of Rome. In theory and in practice, salvation had been made to depend on obedience to an elaborate set of rules laid down by the Church. The result was terrible bondage. But in God's good time, a deliverer was raised up. That monk named Martin Luther began to read the epistle to the Galatians with his own eyes. And Christian liberty was born. Now, it's a great mistake for our modern culture to celebrate Luther as some kind of libertarian. Some person who sought liberty for its own sake and fought the authority of Rome because he was against all authority. Now, he did not base human liberty on the inherent rights of man. That's the Enlightenment. Nor did he base human liberty on rights supposedly conferred upon man by government. No, that's the French Revolution. Luther based liberty on a right which was conferred upon us by God. God-given rights, to use the language of the Declaration of Independence. Luther fought the false doctrine of Rome by preaching a true doctrine. He fought against the man-made tradition of Rome by appealing to what God had revealed in the Bible. He fought against the authority of Rome not by getting rid of all authority, but instead by submitting to the authority of the Bible as the word of God. He resisted submission to the church of Rome by setting up against it the great Bible doctrine of justification by faith alone. He didn't invent it. He discovered it in the Bible. Luther discovered the doctrine of justification by faith alone by rediscovering Paul. And by rediscovering Paul, Luther, Calvin, and all the Reformers rediscovered Jesus. Well, what is that doctrine taught in the Bible? You know it. It's in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Or in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord. Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have it stated in our confession simply enough. It is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us and received by faith alone. How are we made right before God this morning? On the sole ground of the obedience of Christ and his righteousness. How do we obtain this this standing of acceptance before God? Through faith alone. Not by anything we are. Not by anything we can do. Religious works, holy works, good works, social works, even our own repentance and faith. No, no. Saving faith is not a work, but it is simply receiving and resting the whole person on the whole of Christ as he is offered in the gospel. Now, I have a question for you this morning. So what? We are surrounded by a city and a culture and a country it says, So what? what difference does that make? What does it make? What difference does it make to me today? What difference does it make to you today and tomorrow and the next day? Justification by faith alone. What does that look like? What does that look like in real life? We live in an age where that language makes no sense to anyone outside the bounds of the Christian church. And sometimes, even within churches, when it's preached, it's received as something that's weird. Like, who talks like that anymore? Well, What's the best way to answer that question? Let's go to a real-life example. Now, we're... We're done with dusty theology. We want to see what salvation by faith alone looks like in a real man, in a real place, in real-time history. And that's why we read Acts chapter 16 in your midst this morning. This is a real man. This is a story about someone just like you and like me and like our neighbors. You see, the Philippian jailer is a representative man. He's me. He's you. He's your next-door neighbor. He is the person in the other state. He is the person in our country. And what we see here is that salvation by faith alone, is not some theological football for a seminary classroom debate. No. This is life and death. It's a matter of heaven and hell right here, right now, right this morning. It all comes down to verse 30. Look at verse 30, where we have the jailer ask, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? All of this is around that question. And what we want to see first this morning is who asks that question. Who is this person who's asking that question? Now, let's set the stage. This takes place in a town called Philippi in 49 A.D., 19 years after the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 49 A.D., and Paul and Silas are Christian missionaries in Philippi. In verse 11, what we see is the beginning of their preaching in Philippi, beginning with verse 16. Now we see the power of the gospel begin to change lives in that city. And what happens in verses 19 through 24 Everybody accepts it, they're glad Christianity is there, and they can't wait to have a celebration. Is that what happens? No. There's a big stir. The news networks go crazy. Everybody wants to get into the act. There's terrible conflict. Why? why, It's tearing the place apart. Do you know what we call that in our day? We call that a cultural war. Do you know there's a cultural war going on out there today? Do you know ultimately why there is a cultural war in our country? It is because of Christianity, the Bible, and the doctrines preached and believed in the Bible. And the same thing was true then. When Christianity hit the streets in Philippi, there was an uproar. And Paul and Silas are persecuted. Now, when there's a cultural war, what happens? Christians begin to be persecuted, and that's exactly what happens in Philippi. The gospel is attacked, Christians are spoken against, and in this case, Paul and Silas are brought before the magistrates. Now, notice what happens. They are beaten, they are imprisoned, and they are tortured. We'll talk about that again in a minute. But here is where the jailer comes in. What do we know about this Philippian jailer, the man who asks this question? Well, we don't know his name. We don't know really anything about him except that he had a good job and he was just like his neighbors. And we also know that he heard the gospel. Look at verses 17 and 18. It was clear that everyone knew that Paul and Silas were preaching about the Most High God and they were proclaiming the way of salvation. The Philippian jailer was very aware through the news reports that there was a new teaching out there that was different from the pagan philosophies that he had heard up until now. Not only did he hear the gospel, but he saw the power of the gospel in action. Look at verse 25, where we see these men who had been tortured and imprisoned doing what? Singing. Never underestimate the power of congregational singing. Do you believe there is power in what we did this morning? Now, this congregation, granted, did not have Juliana leading it, and they did not have our singers up here. There was no accompaniment. The congregation was only two people. But everybody stopped and listened as they prayed while they were singing and sang while they were praying, and the Philippian jailer was exposed to the gospel not just by hearsay, but by firsthand singing the gospel in his very presence. Now, let's talk about this man because he is a representative man. Did he respond at that point? No. Why not? Because he was just like you and me, dead in trespasses and sins before the Holy Spirit acted on him. You see, this man was completely unmoved by the gospel. He didn't care. He was unaffected by what had happened and by what Paul and Silas were saying. He was completely indifferent to the gospel. In other words, this is every man, woman, and child outside of Jesus Christ. This is our country. This is our city. This is our neighborhood. This was you. This was me before the power of God came into our lives. The gospel... (sighs) I heard that once in church somewhere... I've got to go to work. I've got to tend to my family. I've got to get married. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And how long is it till the weekend? This is where men and women live. They don't care about God. They are not thinking about God. This man could not care less what he was going to do when he died. Never thought of it. He was concerned about one thing, and that was living today the best that he could. That's the man who asks that question. Now, you will notice, he was oblivious to his state of guilt. He did not realize his position of terrible danger before God. He didn't understand that he was in desperate need of deliverance. But when verse 27 comes, what happens? Verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open because of the earthquake, he did the only thing a person without Christ would ever think of doing. He immediately thought, I've got to end it all. My life is over. And he began to look for solutions in terms of the life that he knew. We've had the opportunity to watch Hollywood deal with something interesting, haven't we, in this last week? What's interesting to note, notice the response of Hollywood. And whatever that response is to the terrible revelations that are occurring and the crumbling of lives and reputations around it, notice that none of it has to do with God. No one ever asks the question, Wow, how am I going to face God? What does God think of me? What does God think of this? No one asks that. And they begin to look about for solutions and responses in terms of their own Lives and life view. And that was the reaction of this man. Suicide was the only way out. Despair. Hopelessness. When things go wrong, the reaction of the world is to run away from God. Now, let's look at the question. Verse 30. The most important question that any human being could ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved. Now, we all, or many of us, have had children. I think you heard Ann and I, uh, six children, 19 grandchildren. And it's interesting, kids love to ask questions, don't they? I mean, I can remember one of my children once, age four or five, asking me the question Dad, what does the mean? How do you answer that? But when we grow up, we start asking other questions. And the deeper thinkers among us ask the deep questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? What is life? What is the purpose of my life? What is death? What happens after death? All those are very important questions. But this man goes deeper yet. And he asks the one question that matters above all other questions. And that question is about what am I going to do when I come face to face with the God who has made me? I am going to die. And he said, I am not ready to face the God who has made me. How can I stand before a righteous and holy God? How can I be accepted in God's sight? How can I be right with God? That was the question. Now, I want you to notice, how did he get from point A to point B? Just a few Moments and hours before, he was an indifferent worldling without hope and without God in the world. And now, all of a sudden, he's asking the greatest question that's ever been asked How did he get there? Well, I want you to notice quickly four factors that are very important. First of all, he had heard the report of gospel preaching. We saw that. We heard about that. Parents, be encouraged. You bring your children to church month after month, year after year. They grow up. Sometimes it seems to have no effect on them. But you see, like this man, they have heard the gospel. They may not respond immediately. They may appear indifferent to it. But already that gospel is starting to rent out space in this man's head. It's there. Secondly, you'll notice that he saw the conduct of Christians when they were unjustly treated. He saw Paul and Silas. Now, these men had done nothing wrong. They were beaten with rods, and this was a form of Roman torture. They were more dead than alive. They were then thrown in the inner prison. The inner prison in a Roman system was the bottom. Three levels in a Roman prison, this was death row. This was the bottom. And they were put in stocks. Now, these stocks were not that silly little picture you see of the pilgrim, you know, with his feet in the stocks at Thanksgiving time. No. These stocks were like the rack. They were a form of torture. If you moved, you were in great pain. Now, what would you expect someone to do in that situation? Paul and Silas didn't do it. They weren't bitter. They didn't complain. They didn't lawyer up. They didn't threaten. They didn't do any of those things. What did they do? They sang and they prayed and they worshiped in those conditions. He saw that. How do we make a difference in the world? You're being watched. If you are like Paul and Silas and name the name of Jesus, trust me, you're being watched. Well, what are they looking for? What are they looking at? They're not looking at what a great person you are. Oh, man, John, he's a great guy. No, they can explain that away. They know a lot of Johns who are great guys. They're looking at how we respond when we are insulted. How do we respond when our boss says you didn't get the promotion? How do we respond when they criticize my child? How do they respond when I am unjustly treated? That's what they watch. Now, there's a third thing you'll notice. This man also was exposed to the power of God in the external world. Not only had he heard the gospel, it was out there, not only had he seen real Christians respond with grace under pressure, but now circumstances came into his life that he could not control and that tore his life to pieces. And everything that he depended on until that time was seen and felt to be nothing. Now, just think of the last two months in our own country. How many hurricanes have we had? Three. Disastrous. Awful shooting in Las Vegas. Wildfires destroying half of the state in the West. God allows circumstances to come into lives in such a way as that it forces us to go deeper and ask the question, Who am I? I cannot control these things. I'm weak. I'm at the mercy of forces beyond my control, and I can't even prevent my own death and the destruction of everything I hold dear. And this was now pushing in on that man and forcing him to go deeper. But that's not all. You'll notice a fourth factor. And that is the power of God in the internal world. Look at verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, if you and I had been in that situation, the jail's torn to pieces, the stock is gone, what are we going to do? We're going to run. It's a jailbreak. It's a jailbreak. And that's exactly what this man expected. But notice what happened. Paul says, nope, we're all here. The power of the gospel to make a person do something totally contrary to what everyone thinks is human nature. You can't explain away a changed life in Jesus Christ. And these factors all contributed now to God using To bring him to this question. Now, this happens in every person who is saved today in this room by Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's through gentle means. Maybe some of you grew up in Christian homes and you heard the gospel. There never was a period of rebellion or that kind of thing. And you just came to faith in Christ and you don't even know when it was. Sometimes that's the way it is. The gentle influence of a gentle reign of the gospel. Others, it was an earth-shaking, life-shattering experience that brought you to your knees and brought you to faith in Christ. It doesn't matter how we got there. What matters is have we ever asked that question? What must I do to be right with God? Have you ever asked yourself that question today? Now, Paul and Silas give the answer. And in verse 31, we had the most important response ever given. The most important question asked, the question that Martin Luther was asking, how can I be right before God? Now we have the most important answer ever given. Verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now in order to understand what this means, let's go through a quick exercise in which we bring in others in our own day. Who try to answer that question? First in comes Mr. Sacramentalist. And Mr. Sacramentalist says, Well, what you've got to do is, is join the church, submit to the church, and do the right religious thing in the right religious place, in the right religious time, and you'll be saved. Is that what Paul says? Let's bring in Mr. Decisionist. Well, what you've got to do is bow your head, close your eyes, pray the sinner's prayer after me. Just repeat after me, sign this card, go to the front, meet with the counselor. You're good. Is that what Paul says? Let's be fair. In comes Mr. Hyper-Calvinist. Now, I'm a Calvinist. Our church espouses the doctrines of Calvinism. That's our confession of faith. Hyper-Calvinism is very different. It is a completely different religion. It's not the same thing. But it has plagued the church from time to time. So let's be fair. In comes Mr. Hyper-Calvinist. And Mr. Hyper-Calvinist says, you're dead. You can't do anything. Just sit there. Don't do a thing. You have no warrant to come to Christ until God moves you. You're dead in sins. So just sit and wait. And when God moves, you'll come. Is that what Paul says? Let's go on. In comes Mr. Secular Humanist. This is the world that I live and breathe in. Humanistic psychology. What must I do to be saved? That's the wrong question. As a matter of fact, part of your problem is the religion that makes you ask that question. Now... You don't need to be saved. You need counseling. You're asking, be saved? No, no, no. Be well. Be well. Come to my office. Go through my counseling sessions. I don't know how long it'll take, but you'll get there. And you will get that work life balance that you need, you will reach your potential. You have all the resources that you need, Mr. Jailer, right in yourself. Brain potential. Confidence in yourself. You'll get there. Is that what Paul says? But lastly, there's Mr. Moralist, Mr. Legalist, Mr. Good Works. What must I do to be saved? Just obey God. Just be the person that God wants you to be. Imitate Christ. Live the life of sacrifice that Jesus lived. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you do good. Now, in theory, that's good. Isn't that what the law says? Do this and live. In theory, that works. Just do the Sermon on the Mount. Problem is, it doesn't work. Because like the jailer, we have not obeyed God. We have broken God's law in thought, word, and deed. The two greatest commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. How many of us have done that even in the last hour? When we go down that road, and we understand who God is and what His law really demands, what does it produce? Frustration and despair. Because we're stained with sin. And that, and that sin is not on the surface. You just can't wash it off with a good shower. It permeates the depths of our souls. Once we know what God requires of His law, it leads us into despair, into despair. If our being right with God depends on anything in us, then we have no hope. But praise be to God, there's another way. There's another answer, and it's verse 31. Now, verse 31 teaches that God himself has provided the way. And it is a summary verse. You'll notice in verse 32 that Paul and Silas then preach essentially the whole gospel. They do a whole teaching for this man and his household. Verse 31 is the summary of that. It is the essence of his message. And the essence is first believe. And that is a very strong word. Believe means the whole being. Mind, heart, and soul. Believe means self-commitment of the whole person to the whole Christ as he is offered in the gospel. It is a very strong word. Jesus said to those who asked, what shall we be doing to do the work of God? This is the work of God, that you believe on the Son of Man whom he has sent. It means to go out of yourself and put the whole weight of your trust on the object of faith. Believe, Paul says. Notice, it's believe alone. Paul does not say believe and. Believe and do good works and you'll be saved. Believe and repent and you shall be saved. Believe and join the church and you shall be saved. It's just believe. Faith and faith alone. Faith is the receiving of a gift. It's not a work of merit. No human merit, no religious program, no combination of my faith and my good works will do. It's not my faith that saves me. Well, is it faith in Christ that saves me? Technically, no. It is Christ who saves us through faith. And that faith itself, as Paul says, is a gift of God. Now, faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith in the church? Faith in yourself? Faith in your faith? What is the object of faith? The Lord Jesus and in other translations, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that Paul and Silas explained to this jailer that in order to be right with God and have a title to heaven, you've got to accept and understand the facts of the earthly life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on Jesus. Who is Jesus? True man. They went through the historical facts of his life, his life of miracles, his life of righteousness, his death on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin, and his resurrection from the dead validating that sacrifice. Believe on that, Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus, true man and true God. As Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, This Christ, whom you crucified, God himself has made both Lord and Christ. It means submission to Christ as the Lord of all the universe. And the result? Well, what's the result? If you do that, and if I do that today, what promise is there? Notice what Paul and Silas said. Believe on the Lord Jesus You will be saved. That fast. Immediately. Completely. Certainly. You will be saved. But what about my past? Saved. But what about my future? Saved. Saved now. Saved tomorrow, Mr. Jailer. And saved for all eternity. But who is it available to? How do I know that I have a warrant to believe? Notice what Paul and Silas say. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But you're it. That's all. You and your household. Now, we won't go into what the household means, but the idea here is that the salvation offered in the Lord Jesus Christ to that jailer and to you and I today is good for anybody. Anybody. Well, you don't know how bad I am. You're right. but well, God does. My guess is you're not as bad as the Philippian jailer. You weren't your machine like he was. I slept through sermons. The Philippian jailer slept through this one. Only God could wake him up. It's available for everyone. Christ can save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him. Now, there's one more thing we have to point out, and that is verses 31 through 34. The man who asks a question, the most important question ever asked, the most important answer ever given, but now the most important response ever made. Because, you see, at this point, Luther and all the Reformers had to face the same objection that Paul did, the same objection we hear today. Grace alone by faith alone leads to license. You do this and you'll destroy morality. What's the point of leading a good life if you're trusting in somebody else to get you into heaven and his good life? Now that you're in, you can do whatever you want, right? And sadly, we see that today. Here we come face to face with the whole problem of false faith. You know, there's true faith and then there's counterfeit faith. You know about fake news? There's real faith, and then there's fake faith. There's lasting faith, but then there's temporary faith. That's why our Lord Jesus taught the parable of the sower. Of the three positive responses that are made there to the sowing of the gospel, two out of three fall away. This is the problem of false faith. And you see, we've got to know what the difference is. And the way we know the difference is because of the fruits of faith. What does saving faith produce? That's how you know the real thing. The Reformers put it this way. We are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. You see the difference? Saved by, justified by faith alone apart from works. Declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But the kind of faith that receives that is always a faith that's going to be working. It's going to be working. It's going to be acting. It's going to be living. It's going to be working. How does Paul put it? Circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. But faith working through love. Now, do you see the marks or the proofs of true faith here? How do you know this Philippian jailer had the real thing? Well, first of all, you will notice there is a radical reordering of his life's priorities. This was a man who was interested in doing nothing but watching the baseball game, Philippi versus Athens. That's all he cared about. Dead to God, dead to the gospel. Now what happens in verses 31 through 34? His whole life he turns upside down, and this is, this is the middle of the night. And he now has a radical reordering of his life's priorities. What's priority number one? He wants more. He wants to hear more. Thirst for the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the object of his faith. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. I want to know more. False faith says, tell me what I need to know in order to get into heaven. That's all I care about. That's false faith. That's fire insurance. What we want is that hunger and thirst, like the newborn babies in our midst, hungering and thirsting for food and milk. No, a true faith wants to hear more about Jesus Christ, my dear Jesus. Notice, second thing, he wants other people to hear it too. All of a sudden now he gets his household up. Dad, it's three in the morning. Son, you've got to hear this. I don't want to go to church. You've got you to hear this, son. You have got to hear this. This is a matter of life and death. Now, of course, how we express that desire for others to hear all depends on our personality and our circumstances and our situation. It doesn't mean that the minute we're saved, we go out and pass out 20 tracks in a parking lot. But what does it mean? It means that when this jailer, was saved by God through Jesus Christ. He wanted everyone to hear it, especially his loved ones, as fast as possible. That missionary spirit. What else? Love of the brethren. Do you see it? These Paul and Silas preachers, he couldn't care less about them hours before. Wounds, bleeding, tortured. They got a rap sheet. They're in jail. Who wants to be near those Christians? Now, what does he do? Verse 33, he took, the same, it took them the same hour and washed their wounds. He washed them and he fed them. What good can I do to other Christians? Practical acts of love. Open commitment. Through baptism, isn't that what it says? He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Open commitment through believer's baptism. And then lastly, rejoicing in hope. And he, last verse, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Here was a man who was suicidal, Have you ever been that depressed? As you know, part of my job is to deal with such people. Some of you know how dark it can get. When the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, mind, heart, and soul, there will be joy. This is not to minimize serious mental illness. The point is this, that we as Christians ought to be joyful. We, above all others, have a right and a reason to be joyful. Before in his life there was fear, and that was replaced by confidence. Before in his life there was despair, and that was replaced by hope. Before in his life, there was depression and sadness, and that was replaced by joy. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can make a man sing when he's being tortured. I want that power. I want that strength. I want that joy. And I want it to be a living reality in my life. Notice what changed in his circumstances? Nothing. Same job, same boss that didn't understand him, same co worker that drove him crazy, same neighbors that irritated him. He had to go back to the same neighborhood, the same financial problems, his car still didn't work. Nothing changed on the outside. Well, then why was he so happy? Because even though nothing changed, everything changed. Now he could face those circumstances, knowing that he had peace with God. Knowing that he had the peace of God that passes all understanding. And knowing that he was in union with Jesus Christ. So that now, as Paul said, I can do all things through Him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Do you have that today? Can you rejoice even in your circumstances? May God give us the grace to ask that question, to find the answer in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, prove it by how we live for Him. Oh, wondrous love. a oh, wondrous love that saved a wretch like me. Let us pray. Gracious Father, if we had not read this in Your Word, we could not believe it. It's too good to be true. And yet there it is. And it changed a life and a household and a city and a nation. And it can do so in our lives today. We pray, Father, that you would lead us by faith alone to Jesus Christ. And so save us by his power. And we ask it in his name.